0: And at the Council of Nicaea, on the side of the growing Trinitarian movement were its champions. Alexander, Bishop of Alexandria, and his assistant at the Council of Nicaea was Athanasius, with if you've ever heard of the Athanasian Creed, which kind of parallels the the Nicene Creed. He was also of Alexandria. Their influence was powerful, including great influence over Constantine himself. In the planning stages leading up to the Council of Nicaea, and I think this, to me this is very interesting, because we always point to the Council of Nicaea, but really the Council of Nicaea was just kind of just running through the motions of things already predetermined. In the planning stages leading up to the Council of Nicaea, which was held at Antioch, a draft statement of faith had already been drawn up, so, the results of the upcoming Council of Nicaea had already been predetermined. The fix was already in. All bishops in attendance at Antioch were required to affirm that they believed, and I quote, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, begotten not from non existence, but from the Father, that the Son has always existed that he is immutable and unalterable, and that he is the image not of the will nor of anything else except the the actual existence or hypostasis of the Father. Again, we'll get into hypostasis in a moment. All bishops at Antioch present declared loyalty to the statement except for three influential bishops, Theodotus of Laodicea, you don't have to remember these names. Narcissus of Neronius and Eusebius of Caesarea. And we think it's very sad considering the, the, the robust faith of, of Antioch in the first century. Uh, and where really Antioch is, kind of, is really the true, true uh, birth of the uh, Trinitarian doctrine being established as church doctrine. Really, Really, really sad. Tragic. All bishops present declared loyalty to the statement, except for those three. Each one of them was called upon to answer questions and express their views. Then the council declared their views as heretical and excommunicated all three bishops. So again, the fix was in. And a shot had been shot across the bow of any dissenters or bow of any dissenters throughout the Christian world. The Trinitarians were seizing control of the Christian doctrinal narrative. And is this not where we are still today? But there was a large number that were aligned with Arianism. This was a problem that Constantine was all too aware of. He wanted peace in his version of the Roman Empire. they had gone through almost 100 years of great, great turmoil. Actually, longer. He wanted peace politically, militarily, and religiously. But once the Council of Nicaea convened in the spring of 325 A.D., what was considered to be the Aryan issue was a landmine in which compromise was viewed on both sides of the argument as impossible, and, and should have been. There was no compromise there. After Constantine gave his opening remarks at the Council, it was surprising that the excommunicated Eusebius of Caesarea was one of the early speakers. He was allowed to speak still excommunicated, but he was allowed to speak. He declared the following according to their baptismal creed in Caesarea. Um, And there's a lot of sophistry in this language. Page 14 of your handout. Here's how he opened up his thoughts. So even, again, the Arians still, both sides are, if, if we found ourselves transported back in time, we would want nothing to do with either side. Um, He says this, he says, one Lord Jesus Christ, the Logos, or word of God, God from God, light from light, life from light, son only begotten, first begotten of all creation, begotten before all ages of the Father, through whom all things came into being, who because of our salvation was incarnate and dwelt among men and suffered and rose again on the third day and ascended to the Father and will come again in glory to the judge to judge the living and the dead, I, I really don't know what he's saying there. Um, it's to me, it's it's just as confusing. He's not Trinitarian, but really, what he's saying almost sounds Trinitarian. So again, sophistry. Before anything else, anybody else could say anything. Constantine declared that this reflected his own beliefs, but he suggested one amendment, and this was already pre-planned. He suggested one amendment, and this is from his Trinitarian influencers. Constantine wanted it added that Jesus was homo with the Father. In other words, and that's on page 15, the definition there. In other words, with homo that Jesus and God shared the same essence. The future of Christianity hinged on this one unbiblical word. As Rubenstein in his book stated, he says perhaps this is the most important non biblical word in Christian history homoousios, or the, the hypostasius, it's kind of the same variation. Eusebius, supposedly against the Trinity, accepted the term. And though drafted in the original Nicene Declaration, the word itself was just ambiguous enough that it was interpreted in various ways, some accepting and rejecting it on both sides of the argument. But we know as history bears out, again, the Trinitarians, they won out in the end. So where was the truth found in all this philosophical garbage? That there remained a remnant of true believers, there can be no doubt. But this is the world that they found themselves in. And the struggle of the true Abrahamic apostolic faith would carry on through great difficulty. On one side, they would be hated and persecuted by the pagans. On the other side, they would be labeled as heretics and deemed worthy of death in the view of the strengthening Catholic system. And true believers would be neither Arian or Trinitarian. This conundrum is explained in symbolic language in the 12th chapter of Revelation, where the false Christian system that would replace the Roman pagan system took on the symbolic mantle of the great dragon. So we're not going to read through that either, but early on in the 12th chapter of Revelation, it talks about the great dragon. It starts off pagan. By the time we get to the end of the 12th chapter of, of Revelation, that dragon is Christianity so-called. So Christianity, so-called as embodied in the Catholic system, would take on the very same characteristics of the pagan system it once despised and resisted. The remnant of believers are symbolized as the remnant of her seed. Revelation 12, verse 17, explains... That the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And of course, the woman of Revelation twelve is actually the compromised position of Christianity. It was a, a compromised form. And so, what we're talking about is not the woman, but the remnant of her seed. That is the true believers, and they were in quite a difficult situation, and which would continue for centuries. So a brief historical overview, and there's so, so much more, it really fascinating history involved with that, and also those who fought fought the good fight afterwards uh, that we're not going to get into at this, at this morning. But just a brief overview, if it's on page 16, we've got a uh, outline there. and uh, Justin Martyr lived from 114 to 165. I don't know exactly what year he started uh, promoting that Christ preexisted, but it was in that time period somewhere. In 170 AD, the word trias, or three, appeared first in Christian literature. So again, these little philosophical ideas get thrown out there. Nobody understands it. Nobody understands it, but we'll put it out there. That's what uh, academics like to do. 200 A.D., Trinitas is first introduced by Tertullian. 230 A.D., Origen opposes prayers to Christ. Okay, that's a, that's a good thing. So we still see that there's some, some sensibility still carrying on. 260, Sibelius. Here we got a problem. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or Ghost are three names for the same God. 300, Trinitarian prayers are still unknown in the church. The church did not offer Trinitarian prayer. 325, Nicene Creed affirms Christ to be very God of very God. In 370, the doxology is composed, which contains this affirmation of, of God as uh, or as Christ as God. 381, the Council of Constantinople invents three persons in one God. In 383, Emperor Theodosius threatens punishment to all who won't worship the Trinity. 519, doxology is ordered to be sung in all the churches. Again, the doxology, uh, if you go to a a traditional style orthodox type of church, they'll sing the doxology and I think it's the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost or something that they, they sing in that. And then 669, clergy commanded to commit to memory the Athanasian Creed. In 826, Bishop Basil required the clergy to repeat the Athanasian Creed. Now, the Athanasian Creed, according to the Athanasian Creed, which is found in page 17, whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith except one, everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in trinity and trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty, co-eternal. And then I've got a, a high, or, or bold uh, statement. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. What are they saying in that statement right there? That that you cannot understand it. Just believe it, state it, repeat what we just told you, but you cannot understand it. By their own admission, you cannot understand it. And in all those verses that we read to start off our first lesson, I found nothing in there that was hard to understand. Nothing in that was hard to understand. So what is really even more important to us than the history is what saith the Scriptures. That's really what it comes down to. What saith the Scriptures? I think the history is is fascinating, and again, it does provide some lessons for us. So, and we don't have a lot in our handout regarding, regarding that. We'll go through these things out loud. So what saith the Scriptures? The question, we have four questions here. Who is the God of the Jews? Who was the God of the Jews? We think they that's kind of important to have that figured out. What did they believe in? What did Jesus teach regarding the Father? Who or what did Jesus' followers think he was? Who did they think Jesus was? And what did the apostle Paul teach? So who was the God of the Jews? Again, in our opening verse, we reference Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman, stating this. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Very definitive statement. So if Christ says, we know what we worship, then what did they worship? Suppose the doctrine of the Trinity. Three individual identities unified as one was a factual doctrine. Suppose just for a moment. Why then is such never recorded in the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, and especially in the Old, which is the indis- indispensable and inseparable foundation to the New? The Jews were fiercely monotheistic, that's which separated them from the rest of the world. Suppose there is truly just one all powerful being in the universe, desiring to reveal himself to his creation. How would it be explained in unmistakable terms and leave no room for misunderstanding? Might this explanation be something like this? We provided several passages in our opening comments, but let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy 20 verses 2 and 3. What we understand is the Ten Commandments. I think all of us would agree is a foundation, foundational stone for the law that was given unto Israel. Here we read in Deuteronomy twenty two and three I am the Lord thy God which have brought thee, or Yahweh thy Elohim, he who will be mighty ones, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods. Before me. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 32. I'm sorry. I, I, that, thank you. I, I'm sorry. Exodus 20, verses two and three. I'm sorry I said Deuteronomy. Okay. Um, I hope I hope I put this right here. Deuteronomy 32, 39. Thank you. I had Deuteronomy on the brain when I did that. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. There is no God with me. The Bible, in its entirety, both Old and New Testaments, contain over 10,000 singular. Pronouns, Over 10,000 singular pronouns and verbs in describing the one God. Over 10,000. Now, the Trinitarian will point to Genesis chapter 1 and 26, which states, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Here, as we have throughout the creation account, is the word Elohim. It's the plural form of Ale. But it will be understood that this is representative of deity working through the angels. There is no indication found anywhere in the scriptures that Elohim is three individuals unified in the Godhead. But we do see God manifested in a plurality of beings, energized by his power to carry out his creative work. Not three individuals. Three individuals are not introduced here in Genesis chapter 1. It is God working through the angels in the creation. It should be noted that the Jews, whose very own language is used for the scriptures, never concluded that a plurality of individuals were included in the Godhead in the creation account or anywhere else. If this were the case, then they certainly miss something profoundly fundamental in their own scriptures. You would think they would understand how, the, how, the, how their scriptures are worded and how it works. To who does Paul say the oracles of God were given? In the New Testament, who does Paul say the oracles of God were given? To the Jews. It's their book, written in their language. And if we read further in verses 26 and 31 of the first chapter of Genesis, we see that the singular pronoun is always used in association with the word God or Elohim. So even though they say, "Let us make man in our own image," any time after that, it's still singular. Why? Well, the Father is the source of all creative power, and authority and chooses to manifest that power in other agents agents, when he so desires. Without the Father, there can be no Elohim or Mighty Ones. The Jews understood this. We would say that even today the Jews understand that as far as the language of how their scriptures are written. They understand this is one referring ultimately to one individual. It should be noted that Moses himself was referred to as Elohim, but in a singular sense. Look at Exodus 7 and 1. Moses was referred to as Elohim. We read in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, And the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god, or a Elohim, to Pharaoh. And Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Of course, we know this is a type of, 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 of God and Christ as well. Um, Christ being the ultimate prophet eventually. But here, for Moses, he's referred to as a god or a, an Elohim. And again, Elohim can mean mighty ones, but it's reference to Moses individually. Okay, Pharaoh did not view Moses as a plurality of individuals. He viewed Moses as one individual. So how was Moses a god? Because he was the father's representative on behalf of the children of Israel before Pharaoh. We also know that the leaders of the children of Israel were also referred to as gods or Elohim, mighty ones but in a plural sense. Jesus referred to this fact in regard to the usage of the word Elohim when contending with the Jewish leadership. In John chapter 10, verse 34, and Jesus is actually quoting from Psalm 82 and 6, Jesus had this to say, Jesus states, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? And he's referring to the Jewish leadership as being gods or Elohim. So again, our understanding and application of Elohim depends on context and when and where it should be understood in plurality. But it never, the word Elohim never, never, indicates a triune Godhead, never in Scripture. It cannot be found. So when they point to that first chapter of Genesis, let us make God in our image, they are grossly misapplying what is being spoken up there. Now, we could go on and on and on and on throughout the, the Old Testament Scriptures, showing all the different verses, and we referenced several in our opening comments but we're going to go ahead and move on. The next question, and we think this is equally as important, what did Jesus teach regarding the Father or his relationship to him? Now, we have already quoted from John 17 and 3, but this is as clear as it can be made from the very witness that matters the most, from Jesus himself. In praying to his Father, At the Last Supper, Jesus declared, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the what? The only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And if there is such a thing as a Trinity, where's the Holy Ghost in this? If this is life eternal to understand the two things, what about the third? And again, it is very clear here what Christ says regarding God, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. He does not include himself in the Godhead. We think, we look at that and think that's simple, but obviously it's, it's got a whole, a whole world in, in chaos over this. Jesus declares no Trinity, but simply the profound reaffirmation of 4,000 years of previous belief that the Father was the only true God. All that Jesus provides in addition to this is that Jesus was sent by him for a specific purpose but makes no claim for himself that he is a part of the Godhead. Jesus is separate and distinct from the Father. The importance of this declaration of Jesus cannot be overemphasized. We cannot overemphasize this one statement enough. The word only is from the Greek monos, which has several equivalents in the English language. It means only or alone or solitary. The word true in the Greek is alethinos, meaning true in the sense of genuine and real. If we combine these two Greek terms, we see that Jesus describes his heavenly Father as the only real or genuine God. The Father, no doubt, manifested himself through his Son, but this does not qualify Jesus as God himself or as a third head of one Godhead. How did God manifest himself in Jesus? Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And this is what the Jews were looking for. The only mistake that the Jews made during the first appearance of Christ is just not recognizing that he was the Messiah. That's their problem. They understood that there would, a Messiah was to come, but they didn't recognize Christ as that Messiah. So, Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Jesus was that prophet, following the command perfectly to speak to the people and all that God would command him to speak. He was God's direct agent on earth, sent not only as a prophet, but as the Redeemer of the Adamic race, as revealed in so many other passages, both Old and New Testaments. And any verses that I don't provide here in this class, I'm sure that you have many, many others that that come to mind. And further considering Jesus' use of the word only, in reference to God, His Father, whatever is referred to as only, and we hate, to, we hate to, to emphasize this point, which seems so obvious to us, but it needs to be emphasized. Whatever is referred to as only is in a class of its own. There can be nothing else beside it. If, if this were not the case, Jesus would have used some other terminology. He would have introduced something else. He does not. When Paul wrote to the Philippian ecclesia. Uh, and you don't necessarily have to look this up, but this is in uh, Philippians 4 15. He stated, and this may not apparently seem like a connection, but it is. He stated, No ecclesia communicated or shared with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. Speaking to the Philippians, No ecclesia communicated or shared with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. That seems pretty easy to understand. He's telling us that the Philippians were the only ones that were providing the things that were needed. You're it. Okay, well, that seems simple. Now, Jesus, in referencing the timing of his second coming, in Matthew 24 and 36, he explained, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. What's Jesus saying there? That only God knows the day or hour. Jesus himself did not know the time or hour of his return, but God only knew. What else are we supposed to understand from that? The language is simple. In another passage, in speaking to the Pharisees, Jesus stated in John 5 and 44, How can ye believe? Go ahead and look this up. John 5 and 44. Because your authorized version is doesn't really put the language there correctly, so you may want to make note of that. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Well, it's it, the, the 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 placement of only there is not really correct. The Diaglot renders this verse. How can you believe receiving glory one from another and that glory from the only God you do not seek? So it's not talking about glory only coming from God, it's talking about the one God. And that glory from the only God you do not seek. The NRSV translates Jesus' words as the one who alone is God. So the question really is, is why do you not seek honor from the only God? Not from God only. That's we put those two words and that totally changes the meaning of, of the passage. But again, only the only God, the only God. That word only. Only means only singular, one. Now, one writer on the subject makes this observation. I think it's a a clever observation that, and I quote, it it would be suspicious of anyone who claims he has only one wife if his household consisted of three separate women, each of whom he claimed was his one wife. I think that's a pretty simple but straightforward observation. You can't have three wives and claim to have one wife. Well, you can't claim that there's three gods and and still say at the same time that there is only one. There is only one. There is only one. Along these lines of the oneness of God, Jesus also used this to demonstrate his own inferiority in the days of his sin's flesh, as compared to the Father. In Mark 10 and 17, we find one that came to him declaring. Master, what shall I do that I inherit eternal life? Mark 10 and 17. Instead of immediately addressing the question, Jesus chose to clarify something first. He says this, And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good. There's that onlyness or oneness, but one, that is God. Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Obviously, Christ did not include himself in that one. In one humble statement, Jesus, an accurate statement, it's not just not just a show of humility, it is, it is, it is real. In one humble statement, Jesus chooses to establish a critical understanding of the matter, that God is the only source of of righteousness. His oneness as well as his righteousness is here affirmed as a foundational principle before anything else can be considered. So he stops, he stops the conversation and establishes what is true and then moves on. Clearly, Jesus was not a Trinitarian, but a devout adherent to the Jewish understanding of the oneness of God. But did not Jesus make the following statement? Let's go to John 10, verses 37 and 38. This seems to trip up a lot of people. John 10, verses 37 and 38. He says, If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not, but if I do, Though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Well, is that not is that not proof of the Trinity? Well, if it is, what do we do with what he says later in his prayer to his father in John 17? Verses 20 through 23. So John seventeen. <clears throat> And, of course, we have in that chapter, and we've already talked about it, but this is Christ's prayer to his Father. So what do we have here? One part of the Trinity praying to the other part of the Trinity? He says in John 17, 20, and 23, and that's, there are a lot of difficult phrases and statements in the book of John that deal with a lot of different things, but the answer to the problem with the book of John is that you keep reading. You just keep reading. It answers itself. He says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be at one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. We know that in so much of the book of John, Christ speaks in very spiritual terms. Now, we have all of Jesus' followers included in this. What we have is not a trinity, but proof of the divine principle of God manifestation. Oneness of mind and purpose with the Creator. Jesus manifested this and desires the very same for all of his followers. Again, the principle is God manifestation, not the Trinity. And if you you want to hold to a Trinity, you've got big problems with trying to apply this verse to that. So who was Jesus? Who was he? Well, we, we understand him as the Son of God. That's even declared in the Nicene Creed, but with a lot of other other caveats to that. As expressed in the Davidic promise that we read at the beginning, 2 Samuel chapter 7, it would always be made crystal clear throughout Scripture that the promised Savior would be the Son of God. Never is the phrase or implication found in the Scriptures regarding the nature of Jesus' relationship to the Father of anything other than that of a son. The Old Testament meaning of the phrase Son of God is destructive to the Trinitarian theory. The term Son of God was used in several different ways. It described the nation of Israel, its king, and in the plural, even the angels, and most importantly, with the promised David king. We read in Psalm 2, you can look that up. We read, we read in Psalm chapter 2 the prophecy of Christ's day of glory and battle against the heathen at his second return. Now, we do know that the Jews were offended by Christ. What Christ did claim for himself is, that he was the Son of God. That, that he did admit. And they, the Jewish leadership had, had big problems with that. But they should have known from the Old Testament Scriptures that's exactly who he was supposed to be. But verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 2. I will declare the decree. The Lord, or Yahweh, has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thy inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The prophecy of Jesus' future day of glory. Thou art my son. Jesus as the Son of God is not only confirmed of himself, but repeatedly, repeated by others. We're going to go through these fairly fast. But first of all, we talk about the angel Gabriel. Luke one and thirty two. He shall be great, and shall be called the son of the highest. He shall be great, and shall be called the son of the highest. This is what Mary understood. She didn't think she was giving birth to a, a transformed God. She was giving birth to the son of God, also the son of David. Luke three and twenty two. Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Thou art my beloved Son. Not one part of the Trinity calling himself something else. Luke 22 and 70, by Jesus himself. Luke 22 and 70. And if I get a little ahead of you, I apologize for that. Then said they all, art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. What is meant by that is such as a Hebraism that it is a strong affirmation. Jesus is essentially saying, I am, or you are saying correctly. Peter's confession. Matthew 16 and 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, and this this really is a beautiful moment in, in, the, in Christ's relationship to his own apostles. It is really a... A striking, a moving moment, I think, when we take time to consider everything around it. But Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, or Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then we have Nathaniel's confession in John 1 and 43. Sorry to take it back to Matthew and bring it back to John. John 1 and 43. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. And we know that Christ referred to Nathanael as what? What, what? what did Christ refer to Nathanael as? An Israelite indeed. An Israelite indeed. And so we know that Nathanael represented the true Israelite understanding. He understood that he was looking for this Son of God. The king of Israel. He knew who he was supposed to be. He made the connection. The Trinitarian might point to the fact that Jesus forgave sins during his first appearance, also as proof that Jesus was God, making the same mistake as did the Jews in their accusations. Let's turn to Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. It says in Mark chapter 2, 5 and 7, When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Now, this did not make Jesus God. The authority to forgive sins had been bestowed on Jesus as God's representative. Those who stood by perceived this fact. As a matter of fact, we are told in Matthew 9, which also records this very same instant. Let's go, go over there to Matthew chapter 9. The people understood. Now we know the Jewish leadership was just trying to seize on any little thing to to uh, to destroy Christ. But the, the masses that were there they understood what was happening. In Matthew 9 and 8 it says, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given what? What's, what, it, what does that finish out? God had given the power unto men. They marveled at what they were the, the miracles they were seeing and the forgiveness of sin. They understood that God had given Christ this power, as we see in John 20 and 23, and you you can or you don't have to look this up, but John 20 and 23, that Jesus would later give his apostles the ability to forgive sins, and we know that they certainly were not a part of the Trinity, so the apostles were given the ability to forgive sins at a later point. So Christ. The forerunner and, of course, his apostles followed afterwards. So the power had been given Christ by God. We also see serious misunderstandings of Jesus's quote of Psalm 110, verse 1. When prodding the Jewish leadership in Mark 12 and 36, Jesus asked them, he says, How say the scribes that Christ is the Son of David? I think we're all familiar with this. How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. This really threw them for a loop. They didn't know how to answer this. Some have argued that this should be rendered, God said to my God. They insist that David knew that there was at least two in the Godhead and under inspiration declared the eternal sonship and deity of the one who had become the man Jesus. But we know that there are two Hebrew words for Lord used here. The first Lord is Yahweh, and is clearly in reference to the Father. The second Lord is Adonai, A-D-O-N-I, which means Lord, small l, Lord, which means Lord, Master. Or owner. Bullinger, if you have a bull, reference to Bullinger Bible, he actually makes the mistake of claiming that the second Lord is Adonai, A D O N A I, not correct. But the concordance, but the concordance makes it clear that it is Adon or Adonai, A D O N I. Adonai is used no less than one hundred and ninety-five times in the Old Testament and is in reference to the recipient of honor, but never in reference to the supreme God. A-D-O-N-I, Adonai, is never used in reference to the supreme God. On the other hand, the word Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-I, which is not used here in Psalm 110 and 1, is reserved to reference the one God only. It is used of the supreme God 449 times. David is clearly teaching that he expected Messiah, that the expected Messiah was not God, but his promised human descendant, whom David properly and respectfully understood would be his Lord, or Master, or Superior. When when David is resurrected, he will recognize Christ as his Superior, even though Christ is his Son. On the other hand, the word Adonai, Oh, I'm jumping jumping here. Sorry. This was true. David gives him the title of respect and reverence. Jesus, though a descendant of David, would be his superior in all respects. But clearly, as taught by Psalm 110, verse 1, and confirmed by Jesus, is not the same as God himself. There are two individuals, two different individuals being spoken of there. One is the supreme God. One is his son, the promised Messiah. So what, finally, in our consideration, and again, we we could go in so many different directions here and so many more passages that can be considered, but we wish to finish our consideration on what the Apostle Paul taught himself, who was the most prolific writer, apart from Luke, in the New Testament. Paul states of his own background that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law, a Pharisee, Philippians 3 and 5, that's found. As such, he would have been fiercely monotheistic. The only change he had to make in his understanding was what? When he was converted, what was his change in understanding? What What did he have to come to grips with? He had to recognize Christ as the Messiah. That's exactly it. Did he have to change his views of God? No, he really didn't have to change his beliefs at all except for understanding that Christ was that, for lack of a better term, the missing link in his understanding. So, the, again, the only change he had to make was in his understanding was accepting Christ as the Messiah and understanding how all aspects of God's plan tied to him. We know that Paul understood the law of Moses very, very well, as we, we read in the book of Hebrews. It was that missing link of Christ that helped connect all those dots. We do not see in his confession confession, any kind of conversion of his understanding of God, nor did he require such of those he taught and ministered to. As a matter of fact, we see Paul continuously confirm the oneness of God and Christ's relationship to the Father as his son and representative. Okay, we're going to go through these quick. I'm sorry I do not have them on the the handout. I just thought, well, we'll just, just go through these. So 1 Corinthians 8 and 4. 1 Corinthians 8 and 4. The words of Paul. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other but God. There is none other but God. Or no other one but God as we can render it. Verse 6 of the same chapter. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, in other words, in God's plan and purpose, and we by him. You don't have to look this up, but connected to this, we read in Ephesians 3 and 11. According to the eternal purpose, which he purposed, In Christ Jesus, our Lord. That has been the eternal thing. Christ is not eternal, as the Nicene Creed stated. Christ has not been from all all existence before, like God is. But the purpose is eternal. The eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Ephesians chapter 4, our familiar one, oneness that is spoken of. Uh, that, that Paul references. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, that there is one Lord or Christ, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Sounds, if you're a Trinitarian, it sounds awfully Trinitarian language to me, but that's not what's being spoken of, God manifestation. Ephesians 1 and 17, Ephesians 1 and 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. He is referred to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. That cannot be possible if it's a trinity. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus is God, then it's not his God. He's at one with that God. First Timothy 2 and 5. First Timothy 2 and 5. Probably one of my, my most favorite, apart from, from Jesus' prayer, this, this one really lays it out very clearly. First Timothy 2 and 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Not the God Christ Jesus, the man Christ Jesus. Very clearly laid out here. God, Christ is a mediator. The man, Christ is a mediator. And the men. Romans 16 and 27. Again, the words of Paul. To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. To God only To God only. 1 Corinthians 11 and 3. 1 Corinthians 11 and 3. Another one that lays it out quite clearly as far as the hierarchy and position of these things. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. How could one co-equal part of the Trinity have as his head another part of the Trinity. In Ephesus, Paul declared to the brethren, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. If the Trinity were true, if the Trinity was in fact the foundation stone of the early Ecclesia, actually we know that Peter's confession is the cornerstone of the Ecclesia, then why was Paul's writing devoid of any reference to the concept of a trinity? As a matter of fact, why do his writings explicitly state the exact opposite? He declared God as only one and supreme. He declared Christ to be a mediator between God and man. He declared that God was the God and Father of Jesus. It also needs to be carefully noted that Paul refers to Jesus repeatedly as a man. In 1 Corinthians 15 and 45. And we are wrapping up. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last, Adam, was made a quickening spirit, speaking of Christ's demoralization as the last Adam. Verse 47, the first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Speaking of Christ's second appearance in glory. The first man is earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Still, Christ is a man, not God, but man. And he will still be a man when he returns. He is a man though of the immortalized nature that God has shared with him. Romans 5 and 15 is our final passage. Romans 5 and 15, But not as the offense, so also as the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And considering how much we emphasize the the term one and only, again, this is in reference to Christ's own atoning work, by one man, Jesus Christ, by no other. So much more could be said on this matter, Uh, many more verses referenced and explored. But let us remember that our understanding of these matters is not just a matter of belief, but must result in a matter of knowing God, knowing His Son, and applying such beliefs in loving obedience to what is commanded to us. We cannot love, nor can we obey what we do not understand. If we hope to manifest God now and eternally in that coming age, we must understand who we are to manifest. Again, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And I really appreciate your, your time this morning. And hopefully, I know it's a, a, we're speaking to the choir, you might say, but hopefully these things have been something to restir our memories and make us better prepared to, to give a defense for those things in which we, we hold dear.